Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 50 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. This heartfelt conversation is designed to inspire you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function, and relate better. To learn how I can help you and your organization thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. In honor of Father's Day, I have a very special surprise for you. In this episode, I have the great joy of chatting with my dad, Mick Denneher. Dad is a proud husband, father, father-in-law and grandfather and is happily retired after dedicating the best part of 40 years to developing the game of Australian rules football. Sharing our stories and the lessons we have learned along the way is a vulnerable process and I am so grateful that Dad was open to recording this conversation and for Mum's willingness for it to be shared. In this conversation, we discuss the important role sport can play in our lives, why relationship building is vital for personal and professional success, how to navigate the challenges of everyday life, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with my dad, Mick Denneher. Dad, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Well, Meg, this could be interesting. Let's see where it takes us. <laughs> well, as we're sitting here in your office, I'm looking at this table and thinking, we have spent a lot of time chatting at this table. The family of six have sat around this table and it's looking a bit small these days. Well, it's, uh, it's got a lot of memories, this table. So that's been with us uh, from our days in Cairn, right through to Wagga, right through to uh, Melbourne and now down in Marcus Hill where we're living. But it's got a lot of stories to tell. And let's tell a few of them today. So let's begin with your growing up. Tell us a little bit about Ungary. Well, Ungary was a great place to grow up in the 50s and 60s. Um, I'm the eldest of 11 children. Mum and Dad were always about. Mum particularly was the really the, the home nester. You wouldn't ask for a better mum. Dad wasn't totally engaged in the parenting, but he was a good provider. And Ungary itself, uh, there were all things were happening in those days. In fact, it's got its 150th celebrations coming up on September 10 and 11, which I'm looking forward to. But just going to school there, I went to St Joseph's School, went to the local public school. I wouldn't say I was engaged in education, but I was engaged in sport around the school. And I had plenty of freedom. I guess being the eldest, sometimes you've got, you know, I was spoilt by my grandma. She, I still got my watch she gave me for my 10th birthday. And uh, I, I think back, I, feel, I made a few wrong calls. I remember taking Dad's rifle without asking him one day and we went spotlighting with our mates. And at this stage, I was working in a butcher shop after school and on Saturday morning. So we've rolled the car. One of the mates got badly injured. So it wasn't a good experience. Got home late that night, had to get up and go early to work. And by the time I got home from work on the Saturday morning at lunchtime, Dad and Mum were waiting for me. They'd heard the rumours going around town that there'd been an accident and that I was in the car. So that wasn't a very pleasant experience, but it was a good learning one too. Um, but Hungary itself, there were plenty of good people guiding me around the footy club and the cricket club. And our class at school was a great group of mates. And unfortunately, as you, you move on in life, you don't see a lot of them at all. But I had fond memories of growing up in Hungary. Started work there in the local butcher shop. So, yep, it was a good grounding. So to be the oldest of 11, I can't even imagine. 
you know, like I'm the youngest of four, we've got the three siblings, <laughs> but what was it like in the house having 10 siblings? Well, it was busy, absolutely. I don't know how mum coped. We struggled with four, but somehow she did it. Uh, a lot of support about two. Um, when mum and dad were married, dad's groomers were two brothers and mum's bridesmaids were two sisters and three brothers married three sisters. So we had 11 in our family. Jim and Edna had 11. Terra's the eldest there. And Jim and Leo had six. Katrina's the eldest there. And uh, mum's brother John and Yvonne, they had a family of six too. They had twins first up and Pam and Alan. So they were, were big families but were well connected and, you know, you felt safe. It was a good, good environment. And so it sounds like footy and sport played a big part in your upbringing. Well, I was very lucky in some respects, Hungary Footy Club, was a lot of good people involved there. Volunteers around the place, I can remember the Red Jairs, the Ted Navins that used to always take us to footy. My uncle Jim was a footy coach, uh, Ned Ward was a cricket coach. And I started playing senior footy when I was 15. And I can remember the first year that I played, we were playing against Condobla and I was playing centre half forward and my uncle Jim, who's my godfather, was playing fullback. And I got cleaned up by this big brute of a bloke from Condoblin uh, in the first quarter, just at the end of the first quarter. And, you know, geez, oh, it's a senior footy. And in the next minute, um, that didn't worry me so much. When I looked at Jim, because he was a raging bull running down from the other end, he came into our quarter break fuming, and that frightened me more than anything. And anyway, we, as we went out to the second quarter, Jim moved himself to full forward. But he had a, a, a word to this guy in his ears. He worked past, uh, walked past, and I never had any more problems that day. So Jim was my protector, but footy was a way of travelling. My first experiences of going to different towns was through the footy club. We had great mentors there. I remember the Harry Rowlings, the Peter Millers, great people to be with. They took me to my first VFL game when I was 16, watching uh, Richmond play Collingwood in a semi-final. That was a great experience too. And I remember being on the fence. We could only get standing room tickets. We'd driven all night, got there early, got down the fence, and I was nearly done by halfway through the reserves. But once you could sense the build-up for the game, and I remember... Kevin Sheedy was playing in the back pocket for Richmond and Dan. It was just so fantastic to watch them play. So the footy club has been a big part of my life. I got an invitation to play with South Melbourne. And that little flame that I didn't know that I had, South Melbourne played the Riverina in around about 1972, I think it was, 73, around that time. And I was one of four picked from the Riverina. The game was played just to convince the community that there's enough interest in footy, AFL footy, to grant a licence to the Riverina Australian Football Club. And I was lucky enough to get a few touches in the second half of that team and got in the best players, and that created a bit of interest then from Turby Park down in Wagga. Oh, so what? how old were you when you moved from Hungary to Wagga? I was around about 16, 17, I reckon. I found that very hard. You know, I haven't travelled much, been the king pin at home, um, and all of a sudden trying to find somewhere to board. I remember we went through three places in three weeks, and I nearly chucked it in. But I was lucky to, to meet up with Ned and Claire Murphy. Ned was a, a butcher as well, loved his footy, so that was a boarding house for him. But I landed on my feet because I transferred my apprenticeship from Hungary to Wagga with, to Noel Morrow, who was a master butcher in Wagga. He was a great footballer in his time as well. He was a great mentor to me. He taught me more about butchering than I thought I'd ever know, and then also about... Things like customer service, uh, how to build a relationship with people. So 
he was a great mentor from a job perspective. And then the Turvey Park Footy Club, they were a great group of people there, played in three grand finals with the club. We won a grand final in 1977 under Alan Hayes, who was a coach that was able to get the most out of himself and the most out of his players. And through that period also, I had a couple of a few trial games with South Melbourne. And I thought I was going okay. But uh, they, Graham John was the coach and he said to me, look, son, I don't think you're quite ready yet. We'll give you a call. And that phone call never come from Graham. But Terry went down the year after in 76, 77, started off with South Melbourne before he transferred to Essendon. I just can't imagine leaving home at 17 and then getting there and thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I can make this work and getting to this point where you meet these beautiful mentors that really support you in this journey. And I know that you got married to mum at 19. So what happened? How did you meet mum? Well, I was coming back uh, from Hungary on a Monday morning with a mate after we played a game on the Sunday. And this mate also was picking Lee up with one of her friends from West Wyalong on the way through. Lee was nursing in Wagga. I was working in Wagga. And uh, it was dark when we picked up Lee and Gina. And when the daylight came, Lee always remembers... Uh, when I turned around and, and started talking to them, she remembers the black eye that I had because I got cleaned up on the footy the day before. But anyway, that's when I first met Mum and I ran into her along with my other group of friends from the nursing home and, and with a bunch of my mates and some of my mates from the footy team knew some of the girls amongst them. Anyway, I worked up the courage, courage to ask Mum out to a, a dance after a, a footy game and uh, I wanted to impress. I didn't have a car, so I borrowed a mate's big V8 and I turned up at the hospital and nursing home and I was expecting just a Lee to come out. So Lee's come out and the next minute it's one, two, three of my mates come as well. So <laughs> I remember I wanted to be a big noter, so I, I shouted them all in the door and I was broke. It was on the apprentice wage and I couldn't go near them all night. So um, anyway, our romance blossomed. We got engaged, but it wasn't easy sailing. Um, Lee was Church of England. I was Catholic. And so we, we did have some religious issues within our family from my family particularly, wanted to make sure they got married in a Catholic church and, and at least after hit thought that we should get married in Church of England church. Lee and I actually worked it out beforehand. We agreed that um, Lee would get married in the Church of England church and I would, and then we'd send our kids to a Catholic church. But anyway, we were in trouble there for a while because the local priest at Hungary wouldn't be involved in that. But down in Wagga, Auntie Tess saved the day. She was playing tennis with the Archbishop of Wagga, Francis Carroll. Never forget it. We met with him, explained our situation. He said, just leave it with me. End up getting married in uh, the Church of England with a Catholic priest present in Wagga. And that was a great day, although it was the 19, October 1974 in the year of the big floods. And all the roads were cut and most of the guests were coming from my hometown of Hungary and Lees of West Wyalong. So I, all, I hired coaches and they came in two different directions to make sure if one got through they'd be okay, or if, if we all went the same way and got cut off, well, no one would get, would get there. And particularly on with Lee's family, they had the wedding cake, so they got there, just, I think it was about a half an hour before the wedding. There was no one there apart from the mates and that from around Wagga and family from around Wagga. And uh, the bus come around the corner, we were that relieved just to see the family come. And so we, we had a, a lovely wedding during the floods, and then in, that followed on in seventy and 76 when Jane and Joel were born. So um, we had a, a bit of a bumpy introduction here 48 years later. We're still going strong, Meg. <laughs> going very strong. And that's something that 
both you and mum have highlighted over the years is your ability to work together as a team. You've faced plenty of challenges, but you've also had the ability to sit down at the table and figure out how are we going to attack this one? Yeah, well, th- yes, that's right. And not that we always agreed. In fact, often we didn't. But um, oh, look, um, we did sit around the table because I got glandular fever and I got crook. And I took some time to get over it. And Lee was keen on doing midwifery. So we decided now's our chance. So we moved to Sydney and mum took up doing her midwifery in Paddington and I, uh, and we're living in a flat in Bondi, her mum and dad's flat in Bondi. And I was a house husband, so I wasn't sure how I was going to go with that. With it, We had Jane and Joel, so Jane was two, Joel was just under one. And I remember going down to Bondi Beach uh, in the summer with the kids and it was on a Monday, so... The mums with their kids were down the south end and we, I walked in amongst the mums with their kids. I got all these sort of awkward looks. Here's, a, here's this bloke with two young kids and it just made me feel uncomfortable. So anyhow, I went down the other end, went down to the north end, dived in amongst the, all the younger ones there. And then I realised all the women were topless, so I didn't know what I was <laughs> going to do there. So, you know, it was a, a real learning experience and to take on the sort of a, the role of, a, I guess, as a house husband. And, uh, but look, I remember the time Dad wasn't keen for us to go down to Sydney. Couldn't see why we'd take two little kids to live in the city. But anyway, I went there and I was studying meat inspection part-time while when Mum was uh, at work and I had the kids under control. But I did gain a great healthy respect for all that time of the respect, I suppose, of how hard it is to stay at home and be a full-time mum or dad in the home um, with kids. It set a great foundation for the future for me. It's probably also why you've always been so engaged with Man and I as we've grown up and also the role that you proudly have now as Poppy of the grandfather after having that experience of being a stay-at-home dad. And mum often shares a story that if mum wasn't working, you would um, set off and find a job for the day. What would that look like? Well, being a butcher, there was always plenty of work about. And so I could just pick up my the kit and I'd find work and without too much trouble at all. But it also that was a you know, great experience. I was uh, I played football with the Western Suburbs Footy Club. I was assistant coach there, so again it was a strong club that provided support. So they were, they were interesting times. Uh, there weren't too many house husbands around back in those days. So all adventures have to come to a bit of end. Mum has done her midwifery, which has hold her in great stead and a job that she absolutely loves. And then you return after Sydney. What happens next? Well, I end up getting a job with the Department of Agriculture as a meat inspector and they transferred us to Colcan. So there we lived for three years. Colcan is a great community. Mum wasn't working at the time, but word soon got out that she was a nurse and she was in great demand down there. But having sort of worked in butcher shops, it was a, a, uh, gave me a reasonable background to what I, I was in for at Culcan with having to work with people from all walks of life at, and supervising them from management down to the guys that uh, were herding the cattle, the sheep in the yards and it was a great experience and I remember a vet coming down from Sydney in his big car and his big white coat, someone had gobbed in a local farmer for selling meet into the local town and when he mentioned his name I knew who it was and he, the, this vet right or wrong was going to go out there and confront him and he wanted to haul him into the police station and have him charged and I said look I, 
I don't think this would be the best way to approach it. I'm sure we can be more conciliatory. But anyway, away we went. He put, had me in the car to show him where to go. And the farmer met us at the front gate with a shotgun. <laughs> so uh, the vet said, I'll call his bluff. I'll just get out the car and he just saw a bit of show. Next minute, the shotgun's gone off. So the vet was back in the car and away he went. So anyway, that was one of the experiences, the abattoirs. That was a great learning. But I was also coaching the Manga Plough Footy Club at that time. And... Um, there were some good people there. The year I took it on, they had lost all of the players that played the year before except for four, and they played in grand finals the last pretty few years. So it was a case of developing a lot of young players around the area, and the second year we made the grand final. We had just scraped in, but we had a team of young, real goers, and I thought we were a chance because the weather was... Uh, Terrible on the weekend, and we played Wagga Tiger. So I thought we had a chance in the rain. Unfortunately, I sprained my ankle on the training night before the grand final, and so that just inhibited me a bit, and we got beaten by a point. So overall, we were a bit unlucky. <laughs> inhibited you a bit. Have, playing with a broken ankle doesn't sound too, too well, what, flash. Well, I was really inhibited. It wasn't too bad, but the, I had a lot of treatment, and, and a local GP gave me a local anaesthetic to, for, for the, the uh, well, I thought mum might give me the local letter set before we played, but she said, no, if you're not well enough to play, you shouldn't be playing. So the local vet gave me the gave me the jab <laughs> and uh, unfortunately hit a nerve and it's like playing with a golf ball in your boot. So it wasn't much of an experience. No, not at all. So you're doing your coaching, you're working as a butcher. So how did you start in football and football development? Well, I guess if uh, you look for the positive out of the negative here and we're beaten and I was going to... I was, Decided to take the year off. Marnie was born in 1982 in April. So it's about that time I got a phone call from South Melbourne. The phone call actually did come. It was from Greg Miller. Asked me would I be interested in um, working with them to take on a job as a, a junior development and recruiting manager for them in the Riverina. That was their country zone. And I thought, OK, I'll, I'll give that a go. And much to my dad's horror, he said, you can't give up a government job to take on one of these funny jobs with a football club. And there were monthly payments, uh, salary checks in those times, the first two bounced, so, uh, so I didn't think it was very good at all. But anyway, I took it on. I had five years working with South Melbourne. There were some interesting times there through the Dr Edelston era. They gave away the under-19 team. They were trying to save some money. And I had players like John Longmire lined up from the Riverina and Greg Miller, who was doing the recruiting with me at South Melbourne, went to North Melbourne, and that's the story behind John Longmire being picked up by Greg Miller. But at that time also, Dr Edelson didn't want to lose any players from New South Wales, which is a bit surprising because they cut out the juniors, but they certainly didn't want to lose another Danaher. By this stage, Terry and Neil were playing at Essendon, transferred from South Melbourne, and when I started working with South Melbourne, and this was 1982, that was the first year they started playing games in Sydney. And I worked with them from 82 to 87. So I remember Don Roach had been appointed CEO at this particular time by the Swans, and he had to come down to the Riverina to try and get Anthony Danaher to agree to come and play. He was resisting. He wanted to go and play with Terry Neal at the Bombers. Anyway, I picked Don up at the airport, took him out to Ungary, out to Hillview, met Jim and Edna. Don went into the lounge room and had a meeting with Jim. I sat in the kitchen with Edna having cups of teas and eating lemmingtons. 
Don came out an hour later, had a bit of perspiration on his front. It wasn't that hot. But anyway, we got in the car and all he said all the way back to the airport was, I got the signature. And I reckon it would have been a couple of months later that Anthony bought a farm. So I reckon it was a good deal. Old Jim negotiated a pretty good contract. Oh, yeah. And so in 1986, the big event, I was born. So the youngest of four. <laughs> yeah, and that's when we were at our peak too with the Swans because you were born in March and I had to organise the Sydney Swans versus North Melbourne Country Day game at Narendra. And I remember we were working our calendars out and mum thought this is when you were due and said, okay, I organised a lot of things around these dates and it all worked out. The game against North Melbourne didn't work out that well because on that day, this was being played at Narendra, I didn't know this at the time, I got a phone call at 10 o'clock and said the Swans aren't coming. There's a plane strike and they won't be able to get there. And there's people from all over the river in a driving to the ground. Um, North Melbourne are there ready to go. I got a phone call from uh, Dean Moore telling me, hey, we're on the plane, we're coming. What had happened was Anne said had forgotten to appoint a flight crew to the plane, which was unbelievable. But anyway, they arrived. We put the game back two hours for them to get there, like it was daylight saving. So you were born in a football storm, Meg. <laughs> and I think I grew up in a football storm. <laughs> I think when I look at all my fondest memories, it's footy and food. We've shared a lot of weekends around footy. So let's go there. This big move to Melbourne. So I was one, so I have zero recollection of it, but it's a big time in your story. Well, I got offered a job with the Junior Football Council by Alan, Alan Swab, and I took the job. I remember going home to Mum and said, we're moving to Melbourne, and... We talked about it beforehand, but we didn't really understand what was in store for us when we got to Melbourne. The stress of having to transfer, the, trying to find a new house, Lee and I trying to find our way in work and new jobs. But again, as a example, we sat down, we worked our way through it together. We found a new home, but what we didn't count on, interest rates were just increasing virtually weekly at that point in time. They went up to just over 18%, so it was really tough. But we found schools. Jane and Joel started All Hallows Primary School. Uh, I remember we'd, we'd been there probably only six months, so I arrived in April. So during that year, I organised the first sports day at the school so the kids could play some more sport. And when Jane moved the following year up to Janet Zano, again, there wasn't a lot of sports. So with the support of a lot of parents, I was able to organise a sports committee at Janet Zano that still goes to this day. And I got on with the job, eventually starting to find my feet. Junior participation numbers were all, all clear, starting to fall. And so I had to find a way of a program that would introduce young kids between the ages of 5 and 12. That was my brief in 40 to build on the good work that Ray Allsop had done with the Junior Football Council in the clinic scheme years earlier. So you've got the brief to uh, create a program for young kids from five years to 10 years, what were the startings of that? What did it look like in the start? Well, we had a lot of discussions around what it should look like. We ended up landing on the name Vic Kick. And whilst it was a good program for introductory and developing a program for young kids, it was also a good playful parenting program because you're trying to engage parents with their kids. The, the best decision we ever made was we decided to base it on a school conducted by parents rather than running it during school hours conducted by sports people in a school. Sports was losing its level of priority in the school, so it was a great way of getting parents engaged. But we had some challenges around bringing in modification for kids' sports. Uh, a lot of the traditionalists thought, well, my kids should be able to play 
the game that they play in the in the big boys. And I remember having Anthony and Joel have a having a kickoff down a local footy ground. It took Joel twelve kicks to get from one end of the ground to the other, and it took Anthony three. So you extrapolate that out, and that meant if Anthony was going to play on a ground where it took him from twelve kicks to get from one end to the other, he'd be play on a ground that's one kilometre in length. So that's sort of over time we just were able to bring in the modifications. People saw the merit in it, but still the kids themselves also take some some convincing. Still to this day, if you put a big red share down on the ground and you put an Oz kick football alongside it down on the ground. Nine out of ten kids would probably pick up the big red share, and that's what they want to use. And it's a case from a parenting perspective and a coaching perspective. You've got to be it's wants versus needs. They want the big footy, but you know their needs are to have a small and small football, and that comes out in all walks of life. So, I guess I look at our parenting days and the wants versus needs. It's was much easier than it is these days. I mean, I don't know if you can remember, Meg. We we used to have the roundtable discussions and we, we identified the TV programs you could all watch and you agreed on it because I know Jane was doing year 12, Joel's in year 11. So there's a bit of study needed uh, priority. And so we had all these agreed TV programs and mum and I came home from a school meeting one evening coming down the driveway and we could see the reflection through the window that the TV was on. The kids heard the car coming down, they turned it off. (laughs) So they had to come come out and say, hey, we we did have the telly on (laughs) next minute. Mum got Ted from next door to come and get the TV and we put it in his shed and there it stayed for six months. Yeah, I remember that clearly because we all were given half an hour each but being the youngest of four, you'd often sort of watch the other person's half an hour then it would bleed into another half an hour and cause a bit of tension on the old telly and then it was gone. Well, compare that now. I mean, it was bad enough when Joel used to walk into the house, the phone would start ringing. Somehow as soon as he got in, the phone would start ringing. Nowadays, with kids with mobile phones and screens, you've got iPads, it's a real challenge. And the social media behind that, the issues around mental health with young kids, so parenting's much tougher. Sure is. It sure is tough at the moment. But I also look back on those times with such fondness because we had really clear boundaries growing up. You knew what when you did the right thing and you knew when you did the wrong thing. And something, when I look back over my time, I think, you know, having that predictability was just so comforting. You know, I didn't have a mobile phone growing up because we didn't really have mobile phones, but I knew that if you said, Meg, I'll pick you up at the rowing sheds at 5.30 or quarter to six, you would be there. There was always this sense of whatever happens, we've got a plan and we make it happen. Yeah, that's true. And again, uh, this is where it's important that from a family's perspective, you know, the, the ability to sit down from a, from parents to agree, okay, this is the direction we want to go, and you can't do everything. And uh, so once we agreed, then that was important that everyone followed what the expectations were. And that was probably a frustrating thing is um, when, in the younger days, you couldn't play mum and dad off. <laughs> well, and that's another important part too, of course, is kids do that, so they can't. Yeah, so you don't want them, you don't want them being able to go and see mum and get around what the agreement was or come and see dad. But don't worry, you all tried it. Oh yeah, we tried really hard because you'd be working on mum, and then mum would say, "Oh, what would your father? What did your father say?" And then you work on dad, and dad would say, "What's mum said?" So you've got Vic kick up and running. What's the next challenge? Well, let me set the context very quickly. 
In the 80s and 90s, there's an enormous amount of change taking place for football in Victoria. Nothing like you'll ever see again. The VFL was, commission was established. Ross Arkley was appointed as CEO in 86. The Brisbane Bears and the West Coast Eagles came into the VFL in 87. The Victorian Development Foundation was established in 89. Kevin Sheen was appointed the general manager, myself as the assistant general manager, and then the VFL was renamed the AFL in 1990. But no one actually recorded what actually took place when the VFL resources went up into the AFL. Plenty of books have been written about the AFL structure, but Ken Gannon was appointed to put in place a governance structure for football in Victoria in 1992. And that was an enormous change environment going on underneath the AFL. Kevin Sheen had started up the TAC Cup under-18 competition in 1992. And we celebrated 31 years of that just recently. And Kevin's still the talent manager with the AFL and has awarded OAM for services in 2013. So, But it wasn't easy. There was a lot of opposition to footy been changing at those days when uh, we went from the talent program being run by the VFL clubs into a centrally conducted TAC Cup program, so it wasn't easy. Oh, well, from my stand as a young girl, I spent all my weekends with you at the footy, and I remember because mum would be working, she'd be working as a midwife, and so my weekends were you with you at the footy, and I would always be hanging out for that halftime siren because I knew at the halftime, I could run to you and you were easy to find because everybody else had brown hair, but you had the white hair. So I'm like, look for dad, get the white hair, get the $2 coin. And then I can rush off to the canteen. And in those days, you could get a pie, a drink, and probably a kilo python for the $2. <laughs> well, it just goes to show the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, Meg. I was with your son, Charlie, with John at the footy recently. The first place he wanted to visit was the canteen. <laughs> So I'd love to know a little bit more about the growth of female football and the impact you've had in that space as well. Well, I was influenced by Jane. Jane played in the under-10s and under-12s in Wagga when I was working with the Swans against the parents who thought girls shouldn't play footy. She found it hard. She actually had to get her hair cut, so no one knew she was a boy when she was actually playing. And she held her own. She was quite okay. But there's this one parent had a, wanted to have a team photo taken and they didn't want Jane in it because she was a girl and she had to give a jumper to someone else. So it was pretty tough for Jane. That influenced me later on because I could see the numbers increasing in Auskick, junior clubs, more girls wanting to play. So in 2004, we got together and created the first youth girls competition just with five teams down in Norrie Warren. And Nicole Graves and Paul Milo were great support in making sure that competition got off. And the key thing about it was, I didn't expect this, we had Beacon Research Program being conducted on all the players and the surveys we anticipated like they enjoyed the physical aspect, getting fitter, meeting friends, all predictable responses. What we didn't think or didn't anticipate was this really strong feedback that daughters improved their relationships with their dads because sport gave them something to talk about. And then after that, as the competition started to grow, senior football clubs started to take on women's teams. Then one day, Gil McLaughlin announced the AFL women's teams would start and the tsunami took off. Women now are playing in all parts of Australia at all levels and it's just fantastic to see. It's wonderful to see and it's also wonderful to have this little trip down memory lane to see the way that you've impacted football at all different stages and 
I'm really curious to know, what have you learnt about people in your time? My approach is treat people like you like to be treated yourself. Show respect. That's one thing my dad was big on. Show respect to people regardless of where they are. But also you need to have empathy. Be a good listener to understand the feelings of others. Been involved in a lot of change over time, so understanding people was a huge part of that in any success I was able to generate. It's all about those relationships. I remember we were celebrating your career at one stage and someone was saying that you knew Mick was around because of the relationships. Every room you went into, you had built relationships with people over the years and over the journey. Yes, that was important and uh, I, I felt comfortable. And I think that's actually started from being a butcher, I reckon. And the listeners, I'm sure, would be able to reflect on this. Have you ever gone into a butcher shop and seen an unhappy butcher? They've all got a smile on their faces, so it all started from there, being able to work with people. It's amazing how those first jobs have such an impact in our lives and how you've gone on to create such a ripple effect. And also, people who've worked with you often mention your maps. You have a bit of a love of maps. Can you tell us about that? Well, one of my first jobs, in addition to settling putting in place VicKick was actually being on the zoning committee and so I had to put up maps to identify where the zones were and that carried through with me right up until the end where we had the Melways map put up on a wall that took the entire office and uh, I'm told in AFL House they're still using them. (laughs) And also you're pretty famous for your naps as well so maps and naps. Well I was always an early starter and if I could find a place to have a power nap for 10 minutes, I'd, I'd do that. It just really refreshed me. And it's good to see the research now coming out supporting that. <laughs> You're ahead of, ahead of the curve in that one too. So as things were winding up towards the end of your career at AFL Victoria, can you just tell us about that? Well, I was actually CEO when Football Victoria wound up. The AFL wanted to create AFL Victoria and become a virtually a department within the AFL. And the reason they wanted to do that, so they wanted to increase the investment into football in Victoria, but they wanted to control the money. So we had to wind it up. So we'd gone the complete circle from VFL days, no national competition being the state body and all development within it. Now to the AFL, we've got AFL linked into that. So it's um, back to where it started, I suppose. Um, but what was good about it, the member leagues, who were a collection of sworn enemies at the time, could see the benefits in uh, setting up AFL Victoria to have a stronger relationship with the AFL. And I guess I, I just have to say at this point how I admire the volunteer network that run community football at all levels, whether it's within the leagues, within the, the clubs, within the Auskick centres. There's a tremendous amount of social capital generated through those volunteers that I think governments at all levels also are starting to realise now an investment in sport is a good investment in community and well-being. For sure, because I know for myself I never had a whole heap of talent in the sporting arena, but I loved being a part of it. I loved being a part of the community and what you can learn from working with other people. And as you say, it's the relationships that you build And that could be, you know, we used to have great chats on the way down to rowing at Geelong, we'd have a bit of a chat, you know, row for the day, get some Hungry Jacks, and then we would head home and have another chat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I could leave a little message here from a parenting perspective, kids have to be taken to sports in a car and driven, and I made sure Lee and I were one of the drivers, and so 
we learn a lot about our child. Uh, we learn a lot about their friends. So as soon as you get in the car, the kids are talking in the back seat and they go, shh, shh, dad's listening, you know, and then a kilometre down the road and they've forgotten all about it and they just talk away, you know. It was, but it was a great way to actually get to know the, the friends, get to know what's going on. So parents out there, be a driver. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. We had lots of trips in the car. And I remember you had this little rule that we could only stop for a Slurpee if it was on the right side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've probably forgotten another one there, Meg, because in, in those days, Hungry Jacks were our sponsor and we had plenty of Whopper vouchers in the car too. <laughs> I remember them. We said this massive wad of Whopper vouchers <laughs> in the front seat of the car and Dad would go up to the drive-thru and say, oh, yeah, I'll just get six Whoppers. And they would go to say, how much? He's like, no, I've got vouchers. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a lot of whoppers. There was a few perks um, with you working with the AFL. I remember I'd spend my school holidays in at the MCG and I'd be sitting at the windows looking at what concert they've got going on or um, my biggest highlight was your photocopier. You had a fantastic photocopier, so I'd be always photocopying things for my make-believe school at home. <laughs> oh, yes, I can remember the use of walking the corridors there, making use of uh, the photocopies, all right, and playing teacher. <laughs> playing lots of teachers and I got to know all your colleagues over the years and so many wonderful colleagues you've worked with. So as you've finished up in football, now you've moved into retirement after nearly 40 years of giving to the game. What are you enjoying now? Well, we're now living down on the Bellarine Peninsula in a few acres and uh, that's very enjoyable. We're close to, to you, Meg, with your boys and Damani with her children. So I'm enjoying immensely the, the connection we have with the kids and watching them grow up. That's a lot of fun there. We've still got our farm at Spring Hill over in the Massanon Ranges, so I love getting over there. So I'll be heading over over there after this interview for the weekend. But just enjoy getting out there in the fresh air. Uh, there's always plenty to do, but I, I enjoy immensely just being with the grandkids and, and with just watching your, your families grow. Oh, it's such a joy to be together. And also for Jane and Joel who aren't here, keeping in close contact all the time, and I know that a part of your weekly rituals is that you're in contact with people. Yes. Uh, look, we've, we've got a, a good group of people that I've worked with who keep in touch and care for each other. And it's much easier now, as you say, with, with Joel and Jane, their partners and families, over, you know, not around us, but face, amazing what you can do with FaceTime. Oh, yeah. FaceTime <laughs> is such a gift. It is such a gift to do that. So, Dad, before I actually get to the wrap-up, there's something that we haven't covered, which I think is a real skill of yours, and is your skill to be organised. Like, you are one of the most organised, pragmatic, process-driven people <laughs> that I know, and I'm giggling because just before this interview, I saw you and Mum out with your calendars. So you still got the, that skill of looking at the calendars, seeing what you have to face for the week ahead and how do we navigate that. And at one of the, the greatest joys for me is if I know that I'm in the calendar on a certain day, it's going to happen. <laughs> Well, it's remarkably busy for us, I must say, uh, with the, the things we've all got going. So we do have a sort of a, a catch-up at the start of a week to look at our calendar on the week going forward and then the month before that. But it's also the time where we might have a bit of conjecture too, just trying to fit it all in. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happens when you've been married for nearly 50 years. Yeah. You know, you're on the same page and you can work it out together. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Dad, I'd love to... Invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Right, let's go. Let's see where it goes. I am inspired by. Oh, that's an easy one. Neil Danaher and the big freeze campaign that he's developed to take on the beast, eventually 
the MMD will be cured and Neil's inspiration, setting a journey right across this country will be the reason for it. When life feels hard? I always reckon you take a deep breath and then take a positive approach and have a look at the opportunities that might be before you. For example, it might be just a learning experience or you might be able to identify an action that you can take. So look for the opportunity and be positive. An underrated skill is? I reckon the life skill around resiliency is an important, important one. Things don't always go the way you want them to go, so it's important to be able to bounce back if things don't go the way you want them to go. I remember Tommy Hafey when he was coaching this one, he used to have had a saying that you need to be a rubber man. You know, get knocked over, bounce up. So you've got to have that resilience in, in your life to be able to push through the tough times. And I am looking forward to... Travelling to Montana, to Whitefish, Montana, to see Joel, Nicky, Addison and, and Amelia. Uh, it's a wonderful part of the world and also up to Canungra to see Jane and Claire. Dad, thanks so much for being guest on the School of Wellbeing. I love you dearly. Me too, Meg. I love being here and I love you too. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mick Danaher. It was such a thrill to sit down and chat with Dad. And I hope this conversation has reminded you that each chapter of our lives brings new possibilities and opportunities. Please share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from listening to this heartfelt conversation. Before you go, I invite you to complete the following two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 50. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.